The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're very welcome back to the show. Kieran Cuddy here with you until seven o'clock. And PJ Gallagher is with me, the uh, comedian, the TV star, the author now as well. His book Madhouse uh, is in my hand. Uh, PJ, it's great to see you. Thanks, Thanks for having me in. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Well, congratulations all around on um, on the book and your well relatively recent expanded family as well. Well, very recent. Yeah. I mean, it's eleven weeks today or tomorrow. Eleven weeks tomorrow. Yeah. So that's oh, about wow. as recent as it gets. Yeah. We have a puppy about the exact same but age. See, there you go. And I bet your puppy's <laughs> better can, behaved. We can relate. <laughs> <laughs> um, things are going well though, are they? Yeah, very well. Yeah, thankfully they are. I mean, it's insanely busy at the minute, just in life and career and everything. It's just kind of, it's kind of losing the run of itself. But I have a finish line uh, when it hits Christmas and things are going to be pretty quiet after that. I've learned to draw my boundaries on these things. And are you good in dealing with that... Um uh, kind of a frenetic kind of pace of life. Yeah, I am to a point. Yeah, but I, I, I normally I would do these things and I would book a tour and then all you know the way it is in this business. Like you're, you're always worried about what's next. So you're con- you, no matter what you're doing, it's never enough. You're trying to accumulate and keep busy, and you think if you're not busy for one month, you'll never be busy again. And I've learned to let go of that now. Like I can be busy, busy, busy and then look forward to having nothing on for sustained periods of time and enjoy that. And is that kind of wisdom that has come through experience or age or therapy or what is it that you kind of... Because it's the curse of the self-employed to a degree is you're always kind of... Don't say no to anything because you never know when someone will ask again. Yeah, exactly. You know, they say when you work for yourself, you can work any 22 hours a day that you choose. (laughs) And there's truth to that. Uh, But you have to, you know, you get to a point, I think, I think it's mostly age where you just say, I've gotten away with it for 20 years work has always come back around so maybe it's time to just relax like things have a way of working themselves things have a way of working themselves out um, so the book um, I mean to what extent do you feel with the book that you're I was going to say exposing yourself I don't hugely, mean it in that way but I, you know but you know what I mean in yeah. a way that you, you wouldn't otherwise oh on. usually it was the most uncomfortable process when I started, it was okay because I wasn't really prepared to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so to speak. And then um, I got sick. I got mentally ill and had to go to hospital and everything. And then I wanted to start the project all over again and realised that I was maybe, well, it felt at the time that oh, I would never put all this in. We'll just write it down and see what happens. And mm. we'll do an edit later on and take out the good stuff. And then every time I tried to take something out, it just felt like a big lie. So... Um, yeah, it's really vulnerable. It's kind of scared the life out of me. The day it was published, I just remember thinking, I wish I could go around all the shops and just take them off the shelves. Um, but I've, I'm over that now. I'm comfortable with my own story. It just takes, so it, it's just a lot because you can't paint yourself as being a great bloke all the time. If you're going to be truthful, yeah. you have to paint yourself as being vulnerable and um, not being perfect and being a disaster, I guess. And is that because I think the, the traps people like me might fall into looking at you is that you're, when someone is so used to kind of going up on stage and uh, throwing themselves at the mercy of a kind of a, of a crowd or an audience on television, that they obviously have this like, you know, this hugely thick skin and this won't bother them at all. Uh, you know, like, to what extent was that a scary prospect, the book going out into the world? Yeah, very scary. Honestly, very scary. I, I've never was, I, I never got used to stand up either. I always found stand up one of the hardest things ever to do. I only ever did stand up because I really felt I couldn't do anything else. You know, I felt like it was a lack of skills got me into stand-up, not the enjoyment <laughs> of being in front of an audience. And that's genuinely why I ended up in that environment. And 
writing the book was kind of the same. I mean, it's re- writing a book really is an exercise in finding out how little you have to say to the world. That's the uncomfortable reality. You kind of go, right, I've got to put everything into this and it's still only this size and I'm trying to be <laughs> as honest as I can. You could use and big typeface, though. Big typeface, lots of photographs, <laughs> a few pop-up pieces, a crayon colour in your yeah, exactly. all those. But, but like, yeah, so it's really vulnerable. It's really daunting. And, and when I read back on some of it, I read back on it and think... Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm still worried about upsetting people. I'm still worried about like, how my sister was going to take it when I was writing it. Mm. I'm worried about if I, I put something out there that would upset anybody. Like, you're just, you're just, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like handling dynamite sometimes when you're writing a book. How, how different would the book have been had you got through it without the breakdown? Because you had started yeah. the book, hadn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. So how, like, how different was the book Pre and post. Yeah, it would have been. Well, the book initially was supposed to be about the mental health experiment I grew up in, where my ma looked after six mentally ill men in our home mm. along with our family. And that was what the book was supposed to be just that. And it was also supposed to ignore a lot of the mental health issues I was having during that time and she was having and my father was having at that time. I was going to leave all that out. I was just going to tell the story of this experiment that happened, that the state tried, that our family were a part of, and that was going to be the story. Mm. And I guess after I got sick myself and went to hospital, I came out and thought that, I mean, that's such an edited version of the story. It's such a dishonest version of the story. So, um, yeah. And then, I mean, that's only half what the book ended up being. Every The other, like, it's like the first half of the book is kind of 45 years and the second half is the last three. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so it really is two halves, you know. Uh, one of them is kind of the beginning of something and one of them is the end of something. Uh, tell me, for people who don't know, tell us a little bit more because I do want to ask a question about you and how it relates to you. Um, uh, the, the experiment that you did grow up with. Yeah, so uh, the Eastern Health Board at the time, uh, I guess the HSE at the time in, in Dublin, they had an idea where they would try and bring people back into the community who are institutionalised for long periods of time, people who suffered from mental illnesses, schizophrenia, um, long-term depressive illnesses that they didn't have reactions to with medication or whatever. And I thought they'd put them in people's homes and see how that would work out. Um, my ma had qualified as a nurse, or at least I thought she had qualified as a nurse. It wasn't until after she died I realised she'd forged a passport to go and train as a nurse, which is another story. Uh, and... Because they had their own, well, they had their own problems with alcohol and stuff. This ended up being the career of the family. So my folks would try and live and attempt to look after these six men. And they did everything. Cut their hair, gave them their medication, fed them every day, got their clothes for them every day, uh, made sure they were safe every day when they went missing. Um, So talk about being a round-the-clock job. It really, really was. Mm. And I assumed at the time a lot of this was going on all around the country. I didn't realise it was such a small experiment that it was really only a handful of homes. And uh, yeah, me and my sister, the family, we all lived in this. And it was a bit crazy. I mean, to say it was a bit crazy is putting it mildly. Yeah. And my parents had their own trouble with alcohol. These men had their own trouble. I look back now, I realise I had my own mental illness troubles that just weren't probably identified at the time. My sister's the only one I say that came out of it normal. And then when I say that about her, she gets she goes, I am not normal. <laughs> so, so it's, yeah, it's a very unusual way to grow up. Yeah. Um, we grew up, just on a road where every other house was completely average or appeared to be completely average. But I guess, you, you, like, and you touched on it there, you assume this was happening elsewhere. Everybody thinks their own circumstances are, are average. Even if it like, let line in the book about another kid in the class who, when you found out he wasn't adopted, you felt sorry for him because yeah. you thought everyone would be. But that's and right. Then, and, and I remember that conversation. Because poor Sap couldn't find anyone to take him. Yeah, I remember saying this to my ma, saying like, you know, oh my God, there's this guy in school and he's never, he's still yeah. his original parents. And my ma saying, no, that's actually okay too. 
Um, yeah, that was when I realised not everybody had two sets of parents. But why, why I wanted to ask you about it, so it's a completely atypical um, kind of experience of mental health in the home when you were younger. Yeah. Yet, yet, when it manifested for you problems, uh, you had, a, in a way, a kind of a typical reaction in terms of not people not wanting people to know about it. And, do you know, shame, as in yeah. you could, yeah, the shame, as in you could be, what I'm trying to get at is you could be forgiven for reading the book and not knowing how the story ends, thinking, God, PJ, if he ever has this, he's going to be, it's so normalised to him, he'll just be so open about it and be able to talk about it. Yeah, no. And yet, that's still, there's still that sense of shame, despite the fact that it was all around you. Yeah, no, there's still a sense of shame. There is. I don't think you lose it. And is that because just the, the overbearing weight of shame in society just kind of outweighed what was happening in the house oh, or what was I it? really don't know. Honestly, I just, I can't locate where it comes from. Yeah. All I know is how it feels and how it felt and how it manifested itself. So when I was young, I was really ashamed of my parents drinking, you know? And it was, I wasn't able to just say, no, my parents are brilliant. They're great people. They're amazing. But they have this problem. It was, I was ashamed of it, really ashamed of it. And then when I started struggling... I suppose I wanted to cover that up completely because it was, I saw it as just a weakness or something that would frighten people, I think. There was a lot of that. I thought it would mm. be very scary to people around me, so it was very important for me to hide it. Um, I, uh, I, and uh, in later life then with, with partners, I mean, I, I've been a terrible partner to people. I've been very difficult to live with, you know, uh, because I, I became an unpredictable person, you know, not with anger or temper or addictions or anything like that, but just because, you know, uh, not knowing what mood I'd be in. Would I be really, really, really sad or completely, completely hyper? And uh, I'm not addressing that because I was afraid. I mean, I was ashamed of myself in a way. Ashamed of admitting to myself that I was hmm. sick. Uh, it still felt like a weakness thing. I think maybe it's a generational thing as well. A lot of guys my age, you know, knocking on the door of 50, they see it as a weakness. They see it as letting people down around them as well. And I've always been terrified of letting people down. Like, really, that's been a huge fear, you know, being a disappointment and being found out. Um, yeah. And a part of my mental health problems was being found out. Was the shame of being found out was was terrifying to me. And so do you then welcome that, say, that that ne that younger generation or oh, younger yeah. generations that they're so much... Well, they see... Because we shouldn't pretend there's no sense of shame for them either. Like, I mean, no, I, I, I suspect there is, but... That it's a better environment for them to talk about it than it was for you. Yeah, now, I don't know a lot of young people, but I do think it's still not very... It's because you've got kids now. So your, got... your, your world has just shrunk, you see, <laughs> yeah, to four really people. It really has, yeah. It really has, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That happens. Uh, but um, yeah, I think that the next generation or the younger generation are great when it comes to anxiety and depression, but not all mental illness. Yeah. Eating disorders, alcoholism, drug addiction, schizophrenia, psychosis... Um, OCD, uh, disassociation, these things are still as taboo, I think, as they ever were. And turning around and saying those to people, say, people still don't really know how to react. And that only became, even those mental illnesses never became normal to me until I was in St. Pat's, until I was in the hospital mm. and with these people every single day and then with me and all of us understanding how normal it kind of is. And is that is that is the distinction there? Because I'm conscious as well, you're, you're always keen to use the word mental illness. This distinction there, as I would understand it, is what younger people maybe are good at is mental health rather than mental illness. They get in before it becomes a mental illness. Yeah. yeah. So the anxiety stuff like that, you're talking about mental health there really and well-being, whereas, you know, the schizophrenia, you're talking about mental illness there. 
So, uh, yeah, but also, like, you can have anxiety and be look after your mental health by managing that, but you can have yeah. an anxiety disorder that means you're very much in, yeah. in the realm of mental illness as well. Um, but I know what you're saying. I think I know what you're saying. Like, I never had to get as sick as I got. I never had to. If I stepped in a, a hundred times before I got to the point of what, I'd never have gotten that sick. And that's how I know I'll never be that sick again. I've obviously get sick again, but never to that level. Mm. Uh, Because I know what to do and I know where to go and I know who to speak to and I know what meds to take. I know where my doctor is. I have my parachute packed and ready to go the whole time. And maybe the younger people now just have the parachute packed before the emergency happens. You know, it's like it's... They have someone at the top of the plane showing them this is where you go and this is where you go and it's under your seat and this is and that's what they're great at that we never wear. How, how difficult is it to come to terms with the reality that it do, it does come back? You know, it, I, well, when you're sick, it's. Really, you, really I heard you talking on the late late about it and it, in the book as well. You know, it would kind of strike me as something that might be terrifying. Well, you did, but you, that the illness comes back. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm okay with it now. Okay, like genuinely, I'm under no illusion it's going to come back. But I'm un- also under no illusion it's going to last as long, you know. And I know when it comes back it'll start because depression is such an articulate liar and it sits on your shoulder and it's so brilliant at telling you how bad and worthless you are because it's been practising it for years and years and years mm. and you've been helping it. Um, so I know when I have those feelings to not fight it and to let that go and let it take over and just get into the, you know, go to the therapist I know go to the friends I know say it's happening again take the medication up the medication and if I need to get to the hospital I, I, I'm i totally aware of how to deal with it like that's a learned process though and I suppose a lot of people say you know you have to learn to talk to people for me that meant you have to go to therapy but it actually doesn't mean that it means I may need tablets I may need care I may need a GP it's that's the beginning of talking about it. And do, do you, because everyone is up and down days, do, do you find yourself then on a down day that you kind of think, oh, is this the start yeah. of it? Yeah, I Sorry, do. I know, I know maybe these no, are silly I, questions. They're but not silly questions. And the first time I got out of the hospital and I had a bad day, that's exactly what yeah. happened. Oh I, God, it's starting again. Yeah, and I pulled the rope for the parachute and by the time I saw anyone, I felt completely fine. <laughs> yeah. and, and, that, and that's the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, and, and that is the right thing to do. So one of the things that people, mostly ma- lads, men my age, ask me now all the time is, how did you know when it was time to go to the doctor? And genuinely, if you're asking me that question on the street, now is the time. Mm. Like, now, just go in. Like, just go in the same way you would for if you had a, a pain in your shoulder for a couple of weeks. Just go in. They might give you something. They might not. They might say, come back in a few weeks. They might not. They might recommend you go see someone else. They might not. Just get into the process and get into the practice, uh, I guess, of looking after yourself. That's the main thing. Like, if you have to ask me the question, it's probably a good time to ask your GP. Mm. If you're just tuning in, PJ Gallagher is my guest for the Thursday interview. Madhouse is uh, the name of his book and it is out now in all good bookshops and bad bookshops as well, uh, we should say. Um, I'm struck as well because, uh, you know, you you would have been uh, introduced to most of us uh, on television with Naked Camera. Yeah, yeah. And if that was being commissioned now, it'd be so different. So you would you'd be going into some commissioning editor, I assume, and you'd have you'd you'd have us you'd be doing this on social media already. Yeah, well, point, yeah, it would never it? work now. Everybody has a has yeah. a camera now. Everyone has a camera. Because um, I was just thinking about it before, and it's it is so different. Yeah, like every, yeah everything I mean, is filled. I guess if you tried to do it now. It would be lame. And I you mean, said like, old hash at this you're, stage, isn't it? you're missing monkey. Someone would be looking around going, well, where's the, yeah, someone is filming this. is just this. stupid. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is just a stupid yeah. person. Like, and <laughs> immediately everyone's on their guard now. Like, people are so aware of cameras and so aware that they might be ending up on TikTok or ending up on Instagram yeah. or whatever. But people then didn't think that. They just thought, 
they were the unfortunate person that met the local oddball, and you know that's I kind it's kind of how it worked, and that's probably why it would never work again. Was was it like? Would you count it as just hidden camera stuff? Or is it more, is it kind of a sketch show? Well, I always saw it as a sketch show the yeah. straight man didn't know he was in. Um, so that was the point. So that's how we saw the sketch show. We'd come up with the idea of what way we'd like it to go. Uh, just a straight man in the, in the sketch had no idea he was in the sketch. So that point for us was I always had to look like the idiot. If I came out of it looking like the idiot, the straight man looked okay. Then we knew we were onto something that looked like it wasn't mean or it wasn't playing tricks on people or like pranking people. It was just yeah. kind of creating a a ridiculous circumstance and watching how a nice person would deal with it. That was always the ultimate, you know. And great fun, I'm sure, doing yeah, it. Really good it? fun, again, but terrifying. I was always afraid someone would hit me, you know, or something, <laughs> yeah. because, but they never did. No. Never, not, one, not ever, not one time. Never but even threatened. It's such a fickle industry. I mean, how did you cope then when it kind of, all that disappears? Because it disappears so quickly. Yeah, I, I guess I was fine because it had it was a trampoline. Like, it really, it, it lasted a very short amount of time, but it launched me into having full rooms for stand-up and for the first time ever I wasn't talking to myself in pubs I was talking to full theatres and I was doing Vicar Street and I was going to festivals and people were actually turning up to see me and you know that was a different pressure of trying not to ruin someone's weekend and trying to make someone laugh but you know so but it worked like it it, it was just the beginning of something Yeah it's funny because when you say the pressure of, of like not ruining someone's weekend. Jim Elliott, the comedian, was in last week. Jim is often here on the show, um, a good friend of ours, but he has his own, his first solo tour coming up. And he just he was just talking about the difference between going out in the international and making a few quid. Ah, oh, yeah. And, and and everyone is, you know that there's comedians on before you and after you and suddenly your name is on a poster and you're setting it out. He's like, this is just a whole, this is a whole other world of pressure suddenly. It's a whole other world of pressure. I could never handle it really well. Like people would do their gigs and they'd have the after parties and hit the green room and I was never able to do any of that when I was ever on I'd have the support actor that would say when I do this is going to be my last joke and I'd tell them what the last joke was going to be and as I started I'd have him open up the fire exit and park the car so I would like run off the stage and jump in and then have to get down the road because I wasn't able to cope with the atmosphere of the after bit of the gig um, yeah, so I don't know. Some people, some people get used to it, and some people love it. I, I never really loved it. I always thought it was just too much high pressure, and it's definitely when your name is on the door and someone's paid thirty quid a ticket, you're like, oh my god! Yeah, first thing you think is, I'm not worth. They 30 want, quid. they want return for that thirty quid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how how long ago was that Naked Camera? When did that? Uh, Two thousand five. It was broadcast. Oh, was Twenty years. Of, yeah, I know. I know. I know. Dear, oh dear, I'm uh, 20 years younger than the Dirty L one now, isn't that scary? Yeah, I know. Uh, so, I mean, 20 years on, have you got to the point then in your life where you can walk down the street and you can walk into studio here and somebody doesn't whistle at you and wave a newspaper? Never, no. That'll I, always happen. No, I Even though people don't carry newspapers anymore. No, they just wave, wave their phone. Their phone and whistle. <laughs> they whistle with their phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's what it is now. Uh, well, listen, um, it, it, is, it is a great book. It's a fascinating read. Uh, the best of luck with the chaotic, what is it, six or seven weeks ahead and then calm. So I'm told. Yeah, yeah so you're told. Yeah. Jay, listen, it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Madhouse is the name of the book. PJ Gallagher, the author. It is published by Penguin Sandy Co. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.